because this is our 11th installment in Psalm 119. So almost, you know, three months. And uh, I was starting to read and do some study in the Psalm, Psalm 120, and I wasn't even thinking of where I was. But I started reading Psalm 120, and I thought, it's not talking about God's Word. Something's wrong here. And then I realized I was in a different psalm. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost like I, I missed it, you know. And to me, this is a little bit like, like having a favorite movie that you watch be over. Because we're going to conclude Psalm 119. And I don't know if you feel that way, but I kind of do. I kind of do. But there's still a lot of good stuff in Psalm 119, part 11, <coughs> starting at verse 161. We're going to go 161 to 176. In 161, the, the uh, letter is Shin. And it says this, says this, Princes persecute me without cause. But my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Now the component that began the last section, which is obedience, continues into this section. So obedience is the, is the thing we see through this, through these eight verses. And on this section of Psalm 119, one writer wrote this. He said that this division is remarkable in that it is one of only two, this section is one of only two that contain no petition. The other one was the Mem section, which was verses 179 to 104. So, He's not no, you know, there, there's no request. There's no crying out to God for something here. It goes on with that quote. He says, that fact is more remarkable because of the opening sentence that shows that the singer is still conscious of the circumstances of trial. It says, princes persecute me without cause. But he's not then crying out to God for something and asking for something. He just turns and says, but my heart stands in awe of your words. We do see that the persecution had an impact, but they don't deter the writer, who we think was David, from his commitment to God's word. Matthew, Matthew Henry commented on this verse. He said this, Every gracious soul stands in awe of the word of God the authority of its precepts and the terror of its threatenings. And to those that do so, nothing appears in the power and wrath of man at all formidable. We ought to obey God rather than men and to make sure of God's favor, though we throw ourselves under the frowns of all the world. Nothing appears formidable that comes against us. Why? Because my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at you, your, your word. You know, Luke 12, verses 4 and 5 says this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. 
the heart that stands in awe of God's word is armed against the temptations that arise from persecution. Then in verse 162 we read, I rejoice at your word like ones who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Again, we see the love of and the commitment to the word of God. As I read those verses, I had to ask myself, where's my treasure? I want you to ask yourself, where is your treasure? Where is our treasure? The Bible is so readily available today that we lose track of how much of a treasure it is. I don't know how many of you were in the first service, but when Laura Thulson was talking about she got, you know, oh, another translation of the English Bible. Oh. And there's nothing wrong with that. But they're, they're in, in the country where the people have Genesis and Mark, if they can even read it. You know? And we have it everywhere. I, I get catalogs from uh, Christian book distributors, and they sell lots and lots and lots of garbage in that, in that thing. But go and look and they'll have page and page and page and page and page of different Bibles you can buy. They're everywhere. And I look at my house. How many do I have hanging around? And so do we lose, because it's so readily available, do we lose track of how much of a treasure it is? And the other thing And I had to think about this for quite a bit, and I had to make sure I didn't go too far down this rabbit trail, because we can go a long ways down there, because it's worth going down. Have we lost track of the incredible sacrifices of countless believers who have sacrificed everything, including their lives, that we could have this incredible book? God preserved it, but he preserved it using men over the centuries so we could have this incredible I call it spoil like the spoils of war this is this is our spoil that they gave to us God preserved it but they gave it to us the Bible has been miraculously preserved through the centuries by those who loved it who rejoiced at it and who cherished it at great cost It has survived through time, through persecution, and through criticism. We could spend weeks, and I have some books at home that spend hundreds of pages looking at the many factors that brought us the scriptures and how we know that what we have today is the scriptures that were written originally how they've been preserved from the original writings, how many manuscripts we have, thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. So we know that it's accurate from what was originally written. But someone was preserving those manuscripts. Someone was writing them down. If you want to just have a real, it's an eye-opening thing, is understand how the Jewish uh, um, scribes copied the Old Testament scriptures. I don't have that much patience. I I couldn't do it. But it, it was an art and it was incredibly serious. So much so that if they finished the book of Genesis and it didn't end on an exactly on a line, they threw the whole thing away and started over. You know? We were in Washington, D.C. one time and, and looked at the Gutenberg Bible and some museum thing, and they also had a handwritten Bible, and it's a piece of art. But people spent their lives preserving that. And a couple examples. Just to mention a few, because we could mention them all. 
men who paved the way for the scriptures that we have in front of us, that we have so much availability today. John Wycliffe. He lived in 1330 to 1384. He believed that every Christian should have access to scripture. At that time, only, only Latin translations were available. People didn't know Latin very much. He became translating the Bible into English with the help of a good friend named John Purvey. The church bitterly opposed it. Don't you dare put the word of God into the language people can read. They said this, By this translation, meaning Wycliffe's translation, the scriptures have, been, have become vulgar, and they are more available to lay and even to women who can read than they were, learn, than they were to learn scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine. That's because he was translating the Bible so people could read it. Wycliffe replied to that statement. Oh, you're right, I'll stop. No, he didn't say that. Quote, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue, and so did Christ's apostles. Okay, we kind of got him there, didn't he? In the years before his death, in 1384, he increasingly argued for the scriptures as the authoritative, authoritative center of Christianity, and that the claims of the papacy were unhistorical, and that monasticism was irredeemably corrupt, and that the moral unworthiness of priests invalidated their office and sacraments. The Council of Constance declared Wycliffe a heretic on May 4th, 29 years after his death, May 4th, 1450. So even after he was dead for almost 30 years, they had a, a, a council and said, oh, he was a heretic because he translated the Bible into English. Wow. Then there's a guy named William Tyndale. He lived from 1494 to 1536. Tyndale's translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from the Hebrew and the Greek texts. So he's a pretty smart guy. A lot smarter than me. For your information, one estimate suggests that the New Testament in the King James Version Bible is 83% of Tyndale's words, and the Old Testament is 76%. So he had a huge influence. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burnt at the stake. And then there's a guy you probably, now you've heard of John Wycliffe, You've heard the name. You've heard of William Tyndale, probably heard the name. This is a guy you've never heard of. I doubt anyway. Christopher Shoemaker. I've never heard of him. He died in 1519. person that pretty much no one knows anything about. Dave Kiefer might in his church history class when he gets there. He was burned at the stake for having gone to the house of a guy named John Say to read to him out of a book the words that Christ spoke to his disciples. He was burned at the stake to going to someone's house to read to him the Bible. In 1519, seven martyrs were burned at one fire in Coventry, England for, quote, having taught their children and servants the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. 
Wow. Yes. Catholic Church, probably. I, I didn't check. I don't think it was the Church of England, but it could have been. It was one of the two. I would think Catholic, probably. Yes. So that was from Latin, then? Yeah. Latin yeah. Well, they didn't want the people to read it because it takes all the power away from the clergy. Well, 13 years of Catholic education, they never put a Bible in my hands. No. The Bible is. It's a nice ornament. That's about it. But back to 160, verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. We need to understand. I need to understand and have it brought back to me. This word of God is great spoil. And it came to us through an incredible sacrifice by thousands of people over the years. And we still are having it go out into the world like Laura said earlier in a language that still doesn't have it. Think of the time it spent. And I know I have another friend of mine who went into a language group that had to learn the language had to figure out how to write it down because they didn't have an alphabet, had to teach them how to read it, and then they had to translate the Bible. It took them over 20 years to do the New Testament. You know, that's happened all over the world. This is great spoil. And then we can do like it says in verse 164 seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules let's make sure I need to make sure I praise God for his word all the time I don't need to count seven oh I only did six today let's do it one more time that's not the point the point is constantly be praising God for his righteous rules for this great spoil that he has given to us and then we have in verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. The peace that comes to those who love God's word. Now the word used for peace is shalom. Shalom has to do with personal well-being from all respects. And peace with God is certainly included. This would include the comfort in knowing that you are trusting your present life and eternal future in someone who deserves and is worthy of that trust. Alexander McLaren described this as this peace as a including a restful heart, a submitted will, and an obedient life and freedom from temptations. Great peace have those who love your law. And then verse 165 says, Nothing can make them stumble. Security comes from God and from God's word. Nothing else can provide that. No other belief systems can provide that. In fact, when you look at all the other belief systems in the world, and we could list a whole bunch of them, like all of them, the adherence to those belief systems are constantly trying to work harder to do more to make sure that they have what they are told is going to be acceptance to God in the, in the next life. Even Muhammad, when he on his deathbed said, I don't know what Allah is going to do with me. Well, that's a real comforting thought. And you could go on and on and on. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. We have that security, that knowledge, that understanding that security comes from God and what God says in his word. And nothing else can provide it. Pick out one. Pick out any other religious group in the world. They don't have it. Then you have the people that are creating their own religion 
My, my son sent me a text this week. He was talking to a co-worker. She called herself, I don't know how these two words can go together, an atheistic Satanist. That's pretty scary to begin with. Do you think she had peace? And nothing can make her stumble? No. A study and a meditation of God's word and a commitment to God as your Lord and Savior is essential for stability. Now, if we get into the Christian world, in my opinion, far too many Christians dabble at Bible study. I've done it. Interestingly enough, this includes members of the clergy. For them, it can become part of their job. And the passion of study we see in the holes of Psalm 119, they don't even have it in their life. That happens. That happens. And it happens with a lot of of these so-called preachers that have bought into all this whole relativistic thinking and and uh, tickling the ears of the congregation. It ties into that, that uh, sermon that I think I told you about that I heard that was presented in August on the gospel according to the Beatles. You listen to that thing. That guy didn't, he, he doesn't know what the Bible says. He knows a couple verses. But he dabbles in study. He doesn't know the Bible. Christians need to read and study the Bible for their personal encouragement and benefit. Pastors need to do that. Clergy needs to, even Christian clergy needs to do that for their own benefit. It's real easy for a pastor to get so involved. Well, I got to get this message. I got to get this message. And they're working on that. And they don't study the Bible. They don't love the law like they should because it becomes more of a task rather than a, a I got to get more of this. And we need to pray for our pastors that they maintain that love. And I'm not saying that they don't have it, but it's so easy. I talked to one pastor years ago. And he said, I've got to do personal study that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching because if I don't, I, would, I just don't get that. I, I need to get that love. Another thing that we need to be aware of is that we need a passion for all of God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is profitable. That includes both the Old and the New Testaments. It's easy just to focus on one or two things, but we need to get the whole thing. And then we have in verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Again, going back to Matthew Henry, he wrote on verse 167 this. I'm going to read one, verse 167 again. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. On that verse, Matthew Henry wrote this. Here is the whole duty of man. For we are taught, one, to keep our eye on God's favor as our end. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation, not only temporal but eternal salvation. I have hoped for that as my happiness. I laid up my treasure in it. I have hoped for it as thine, as a happiness of thy preparing, thy promising, and which consists of being with thee. Hope of this has raised me above the world and borne me up under all my burdens in it. And then he said, we are taught to keep our eye on God's word as our rule. 
I have read thy commandments, that is, I have made conscience of, my con of conforming myself to your will in everything. When I read those three verses, verses 165 through 167, I was struck by the special aspect that the writer of this psalm did not think for a second that the commandments or the testimonies or the precepts of God were a burden to him. Instead of a burdensome, they were a joy to him. They were a joy. On this topic, I ran across a statement got by a guy named Gary Lashmut. D. Lashmut. Sorry about that. He said this, if you view God's commandments as the means by which you must earn his acceptance, they will feel very burdensome to you. If you view God's commandments by the means by which you must earn his acceptance, they will feel very burdensome to you. Another side I went to lists the three reasons why God's commandments are not burdensome. The list was, we are motivated by love for him. You know, we want to do things for people we love. It's not a burden to do something for someone you love. Number two, the Holy Spirit empowers us. We're not left alone to do it. If we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit, so we don't have to do them in our own power. And third, his commands revive our soul. They become a source of strength for our lives. Writing on this on verse 168, Derek Kidner pointed out, Note the reverence for God himself, not for Scripture in isolation. He says, I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. He's not... He's not worshiping the Word. He's worshiping God, and the Word is God's Word. Our love for God is the basis of our love for God's Word. You can't get it the other way. All my ways are before you. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 speak to our love for God. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 8, for though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a great, that's a great passage. So that real quickly is the Shin section. Yes. Um, the writer of this psalm uh, says, I rejoice at your word. How much of the word was available to him at this point? That's a, that's a great question. And uh, I, think, I think we spoke to this a long time ago. But the question is, how much of God's word was available to the writer? Probably the works of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, maybe some of the Psalms, but not very much. Yeah. I don't know when Joshua and Judges were written, but possibly. You didn't have very much. Not not what we have. Yes. Yeah, we, we have a lot more than he had. Not only do we have a lot more of the Bible, but we have a lot more of the unfolding of history. We know about Christ. We know about 
what Isaiah was talking about. We know all these, all these things that have come to pass, and yeah. I I think um, Bible study for quite a long time, for a number of years, and I also was raised in a Catholic church, and I we were discouraged literally in reading the Bible because um, the priest could tell us all we needed, you know. Right. Um, when I took Bible study, I was absolutely amazed how the Old Testament is like a laser Christ. It's like a laser light pointing at Christ. Everything in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a laser to Christ. One problem that we have, I think, is the title. The Old Testament. You know, it's not old. You know, in that sense, but we thought new. Well, new's better. So it, you know, it's the whole word of God, and it, it it all points to Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing. To, th- those are great comments and questions. Now we're getting to close to the end of this great, great chapter. Tov. Starting with verse 169. Again, every verse starts with that letter. And it says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The emphasis in this stanza, the Tav stanza, is petitioning God. And then the crying out to God is the proper understanding of the condition of the psalmist. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. One thing you notice today from many, if not all, of those who make claims that they have been to heaven and now they have come back to tell others about their alleged visits is a lack of humility before God. There is an absolute lack of humility. Claims are made like this. And I'm not these are quotes. I'm not making this up. God asks me for my opinion. Jesus played with my hair. That does happen, did happen. Jesus likes to ride motorcycles when he has the time. Sports are played and there are athletes in heaven. Football with a larger field and no helmets are needed because you can't get hurt. Whichever team wins carries Jesus across the field. We could go on and on with these totally, totally absurd claims. They're insane. And before you think, well, these guys are kooks, and they are, they'll have hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTubes and Facebook and these other things. Hundreds of thousands of followers sell books like crazy. But look at one thing that's always missing. Always, no matter what they say. Is humbleness before God. What is not missing, in fact, what comes to the fore, is the elevation of myself, the elevation of man. This stuff is obviously totally bla- total blasphemy, total blasphemy. But they praise themselves. They praise themselves. 
Verse 169, it starts out, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. That's a humility. That's a cry. I need you. Give me understanding according to your word. The writer of Psalm 119 understands his condition before God, and that condition is stated in verse 176, where he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. He is humble before God. It brings to mind Isaiah 53, 6, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. And the many passages that paint Jesus as the true shepherd. But even though the writer understands his condition before God, it does not stop him from crying out to God. Isn't that interesting that we can cry out to God and he hears us? No one has ever truly come to God without first understanding their true condition before him. And that's a condition of sinfulness and a true need for God. Martin Luther spoke of believers in Christ as once being, quote, both justified and a sinner that's what we are we're justified and a sinner we get both he also wrote when our lord and master jesus christ said repent he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance that means that believers never should stop thinking themselves as lost sheep Spurgeon said it this way, and I think I have it in your notes. The sincerest professions of human fidelity must give place to the acknowledgement of helplessness. We are helpless before God. Helpless. God doesn't come out for our opinion. He doesn't come take us up to heaven to play with our hair. We are helpless before God, and we need to cry to God out of that helplessness. And what you have to do when you determine, when you realize you're helpless, you have to give up your pride. In this stanza, we see that the writer would lack unless God provides. In verse 169, He gets from God understanding. It is God who opens our eyes to understanding. Not because of any insight on our part. There isn't one of us here that are smart enough to configure all that out and figure God out. He gives it to us. Yes. Your reference there, 1 Corinthians 18.25, seems to be in reference 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. Did I forget the 1? Oh, it's in my notes is the 1. Sorry about that. You're reading ahead. Well, yeah. My apologies. Thanks for correcting it and catching that. It is God who opens our eyes to understanding, not because of our smarts. The one thing I've said about Christianity that makes it one of the validations that it is the true religion, that it is the truth, is that it is so simple a five-year-old can understand it. And it's so deep that a guy with twice the intellect of Einstein can't get his head around head around it. You can study it for a lifetime and you never, you never it's you can't you can't get all the way around it. It's so deep. And any insight, any understanding we get is because God has revealed that through his spirit. When you look at those who get caught up into various cults and false religions, it's not because they are unintelligent. Believers are not more discerning. The only difference is that God has provided his knowledge 
an insight to them or to us. There is nothing of pride that we can take note of. Oh, I figured it out. Good for me. No, you can't do that. We can't do that. It's God that has given that insight to us. We are all totally dependent upon God. Let my cry become before you, O God. Give me understanding according to your word. And then I said 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 speaks to it saying, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Greeks and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is God who does it. And I was reading through that. A whole bunch of stuff started going through my brain as I was, I, I, I was reading that. We live, in a, we live in a culture today where the non-believing world thinks they're pretty smart. Thinks they're pretty smart. And the more they talk, the more folly it is. And that comes from anywhere from uh, Richard Dawkins tried to have him explain how the earth came to being in a totally godless existence and out of nothing and the more they talk you just sit there and, and, and you kind of turn your head and go huh because the more folly it becomes and it's folly because they've rejected the true source of truth and I can't sit here and say oh I'm smarter than him because God gave me that insight. It wasn't that I figured it out. And then culturally, all the stuff that's right and wrong today that we see every day in the news and stuff, it's folly because they've rejected the truth of the gospel. The next thing we see in verse 70 is God will deliver or salvation. God is our sole source of salvation. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. God is our sole source of salvation. There is nothing we do. There's nothing we can do. He delivers us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need to get that verse, if it's not already, emblazoned in the inside of your brain. We have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. God is the sole source of salvation. It's a clear distinctive of Christianity. God is the sole source. Every other religious system in the world places responsibility upon the individual to merit consideration from their deity for their eternal destiny. Every one of them does. It all varies. Some cults and isms try to merge what they call grace with human merit. Oh, yes, grace, but we also have this human merit thing we have stuck on it. But it is shown here as well as many other places in Scripture. It is God who delivers and it is totally according to His Word. Nothing that we earn or nothing that we deserve. So, verse 170. Deliver me according to your Word. Then we have in verse 171 and 172 the capability to truly worship God. 
says, My lips, verse 171, My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. In these two verses we see, and this is interesting to me, we are capable of verbally praising God. We can praise God. But we need to understand that merely praising Him without the proper relationship to Him has absolutely no value. In fact, it has, I would say, negative value. It's worse. This is brought out in Isaiah 11, 1, 11 to 15, where God tells the people of Israel this. He said, what, is, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? These people were doing a lot of sacrifices. They were religious God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That's what God thought of Israel's religious festivities. You think it's any different today? No. This quote ends with God telling Israel that he will hide his eyes and not listen to their prayers. And it's not because they're not speaking out to him, because they were. They were calling it out to God. But their heart was far from him. They are not seeking God the way we see the psalmist seeking him in Psalm 119, both in this stanza and all of Psalm 119. Worship begins with the right heart attitude to God, the right relationship. And he is not fooled by so-called worship today that is more about man than it is about him. And we could pull up a thousand YouTubes and show you perfect examples of worship that's about man. He knows who have the hearts filled with love for him, and he knows when the worship is genuine. And as we see in Isaiah, he has no tolerance for other types of so-called worship. So how are we to worship? Part of the answer is given in the next verse, in verse 173. God will help us worship Him. We don't have to worry about missing it. God will help us. And we can't worship God in our own strength anyway. It says, Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. So what we have here in verse 173 and 174 is the power to live properly. God is our source. That He is our source was just revealed. And interestingly, God does not just tell us to worship Him and then leave us on our own to figure it out. His hand is ready to help us. He wants us to call to Him for help. One thing for certain, knowing God's Word is essential in worship and in worshiping Him with our heart. If we don't know His Word, it's going to be pretty hard to do that. We will not have the right attitude, the right heart before Him. And then in verse 175, let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. We, God gives us the strength to preserve. He gives us the power to live properly, as we saw in verse 173 and 174. And he gives us the strength to preserve in verse 175. He does not leave us to try to figure it out. 
to follow him or to worship him in our own power. He knows our power is insufficient. We see this in Romans 7. And this brings it out when it says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now if I now if I do what I want what now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Now this is the apostle Paul speaking. Okay? I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We have to delight in God. Because we'll go the wrong way by ourselves. And then... The last verse. This incredible chapter. I have gone astray like a lost sheep to seek. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not commit forget your commandments. The last verse of the stanza. And it's a, a completion of this great psalm. And it's kind of a compilation in a sense. It points to the servant attitude of the writer. He acknowledges his propensity to go astray from God and ask God to seek him. We've said it before. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are not anything that we would want to emulate or be like. But we are like that. And then he asks, Seek your servant. I need you to seek me, God, God. For I do not forget your commandments. I'm sure glad it's God who seeks us, not me who seeks him, because I would fail every time. As Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That is a real brief rundown of Psalm 119.